And we return this morning with uh, the Three Musketeers are back together again in the same studio. Bob Metz, Jeff Schlemmer, and Jim Chapman. Gentlemen, it's very nice to have all three of us together again. Yes, yes it, it is. is. It's, been a, it's been a summer of people in and people out, but uh, we're back to the grind again. The grind? Is it a grind? It's not a grind. No. No, it's not a grind. No way. Just what we talk about is a bit of a grind. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's something I want to ask you about. Here's a story out of Toronto. And and uh, I don't mean this to be an attack against this individual nor against his party. I really don't. But I want to use this perhaps to discuss a little more, or, or maybe we can shed a little light on the political process here. The story ran in the Toronto Star that uh, Michael Ignatieff, who is now a Liberal MP, Member of Parliament, running for the leadership of the Liberal Party, has refused to commit to running in the next election if he loses his bid, bid to become the leader of the Federal Liberal Party. He was asked at a meeting with the Star editorial board if he'd run in the next election if he loses, and he said, well, it depends who the leader is. Now, he is expected by many to win this. He's considered to be the frontrunner by many people. Um, but he has said that I'd have to look at uh, a lot of different things. He said, nobody should doubt my devotion to the party. I've been a committed liberal since I was 17, and he went on to talk about all his writing that has been very seminal in the development of, uh, of uh, sort of the new large L liberalism of the last few years. He sa- and I thought this was interesting. He said, when I go into rooms, people are glad I'm in the room because they've read stuff I wrote which contributed to their sense of what it is to be a liberal and what liberal philosophy is. There are all kinds of ways I can serve the party. Now, my question for you guys, and again, I don't mean to attack him at all, because I think, I suspect if I were in his position, I probably would have said the same thing. But, do you think it's wrong for someone to put themselves up for the leadership of a party like this, to come in from outside the country, he hasn't lived in the country for 30 years, to ride in on a white horse and say, I'll I'll be your savior, I'm going to run for the leadership of the party. However, if I don't win, I'm going to get on my horse and ride away again. Does that tell us anything negative about this individual, or is this simply real politic? Is it simply a fellow who recognizes that maybe he wouldn't be all that effective as a backbencher? He's a leader, and if he can't lead, he's going to go and lead somewhere else. Jeff, what do you make of that? Well, uh, I I saw that story as well, and uh, I guess one thing you can say about it is that at least he's being honest, and that it would be easier for him to say now that, no, I'm committed uh, for life and so on, and then if things don't work out, to suddenly say, oh, things have changed, and, and off I go. So I guess he's being honest, but I think it will hurt him, though, and uh, I'm quite interested in this as a liberal, of course. In fact, I was at uh, Chris Bentley's Riding uh, Association barbecue last night, and this was the main topic uh, of debate, is the federal leadership uh, race. So I think from my perspective that it will hurt him having said that because as it stands right now, there's a sense that he's not somebody who's been around, uh, hasn't paid his dues in the party, if you like, uh, hasn't uh, necessarily that plugged into the Canadian situation, although he's certainly a very, very smart guy, no question about that, very accomplished. Um, A lot of us are still scratching our heads about how he reconciles being... um, quite active in human rights and uh, he was uh, he ran a human rights center at Harvard uh, University and so on um, and yet still strongly supporting uh, George Bush in, in the war in Iraq and uh, so that sort of gives a lot of kind of jitters off the bat and then if he's saying yeah I'm here for now and if I get what I want I'll, I'll stick around if I don't get it I'm off to the next gig um, I think I, my sense would be a lot of the party kind of rank and file would be somewhat offended by that 
Bob, you're not uh, plugged into the liberals. What, what do you make of this from a practical political point of view? Well, if, he, if he's into human rights and he supports George Bush, I don't see that as a contradiction. I see that as consistent. Uh, however, if he's the architect of what we might call liberal philosophy, isn't that just tax and spend? <laughs> I mean, what is liberal philosophy other than abroad almost not having one? Uh, that seems to be what liberal philosophy well, is about. You should ask Jeff. He's the liberal. What's liberal <laughs> philosophy? Does it, go, does it go beyond tax and spend? Uh, well, I guess the first thing is when you talk about tax and spend, I can't think of anybody who's spent more than uh, George Bush. Uh, the second kind of biggest spender I've ever heard of is uh, Ronald Reagan. So I, I don't know how we how we successfully get that label attached to us because I believe that uh, when the liberals went in, were in office uh, in Ottawa for the last 12 or 13 years that uh, they got us out of a big deficit that the Tories had left and uh, got into big surpluses, but that said, uh, my sense of liberal philosophy is that generally there's. Uh, I distinguish that from a, um, a traditional conservative libertarian philosophy in the sense that libertarian is more about um, you should look after yourself and. Uh, collaborate around a few things um, like defense and so on but broadly speaking people should get on on their own way and they should uh, make their own way whereas liberals are more uh, mushy and uh, have this idea that if there are animals in the herd who can't quite keep up that we should give them a hand and that's what it boils down to for me I wish that were true, because we're not talking about animals in a herd who can't help themselves. We're helping, everybody's helping themselves. We have universal health care, <laughs> universal education. That's where the money's going, not the people who can't help themselves. And that's why there's no money for the people who can't help themselves. So it's anti-humanitarian. It's illogical to have everyone in a safety net, the concept of which is having people outside it to hold it up. You know, uh, Even the visual concept doesn't make sense. So that, that, that it's collapsing should be no surprise. Why, you know, <laughs> the thing is that the, the, it seems like I, I would suggest that uh, in in the world, Canada is probably seen as being a somewhat liberal country um, compared to kind of the norm, if you like, particularly around, around industrialized countries. And I think that that a majority of Canadians, although we have some aspects of being pretty, um, would you say? Uh, Conservative isn't really the word I'm looking for, but we do believe in individual values and so on. But broadly speaking, people, I think, generally have supported kind of a liberal-ish philosophy. And I think that, that uh, Stephen Harper made up most of his ground in the last election by appealing, try to, trying to appeal more. Well, see, now I think you're mixing small L liberal with large L liberal, which are two totally different things. And I might agree with you that a lot of people have the small L liberal-ish philosophy. I'd put myself in that ish category. Well, that's the first you know, kind of issue today, aren't yeah. you? I'm talking to... Uh, well, it's mushy, eh? Ishy. talking to other big liberals about the leadership candidates, and I'm saying, well, well, so-and-so, what? where would you put them on a spectrum of small C, small L? Uh, because I really have no idea. Uh, there was um, some folks talking about Stefan Dion last night, and, and uh, you know, I had to admit that although he's been a cabinet minister for a long time, I really have no idea where his political ideology lies. I have no idea whether he's leftish, rightish, middle-ish, uh, nothing. They, they mentioned that he was the environment minister and that he's big on the environment. It's like, okay, I hear that. I debated him one time on television, and it was a very interesting experience. Um, this was when he was the uh, constitutional stick it together minister. I forget what, they, what the title was, but the uh, you know the guy that went around the country trying to hold us all together. The guy, yeah, yes. And uh, he was a very uh, he was a very strange cat. Very quiet. He had the sense that he certainly was intelligent, well spoken. Um, English, not his first language, but that wasn't much of an impediment. But, you, you know, every once in a while he'd sort of twist the syntax a little wee bit. Um, but was right there, but, but no passion, no fire, 
and uh, no ability to rise above the platitude. That's what I remember about him because I tried very hard, and I wasn't the only one. There are four people on this panel. He was, he and I were two of them, trying to engage the this whole issue of separatism and what what is the point and what can be gained and what could be lost, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, I wasn't d- debating in favor of separatism, um, and he certainly wasn't in favor of it. But I just found that he was very sort of diffident. I have trouble imagining him as being a uh, any kind of a commanding leader in this country, and and I think we need. I think most countries do need some leader who at some level inspires a certain amount of uh, confidence that he has things under control, even if you don't like the things he's got under control. Well, and I gather his background is as a political science professor, Mm -hmm. and I don't know whether, um, you know, being a a professor in a university kind of takes the fire out of your language, (laughs) makes you kind of boring, I don't know. But uh, but interestingly, that was was another (laughs) issue that came up was Ken Dryden. And uh, people talk about Ken Dryden, everybody likes Ken Dryden and so on, but they say somehow when he speaks, it just doesn't grab you. And uh, somebody was trying to explain to me that it's not that he doesn't have charisma, because he he, he is an engaging guy in in that sense, but when you hear him speak, publicly he just doesn't catch fire somehow yeah although i saw him speak in the last election uh, uh, and uh don't you think that's because he hasn't got anything to offer under the banner he's running under he can be the greatest charismatic person but if he's telling people listen uh, you got to keep your lights low you got to cut back on this no but he yeah. doesn't he yeah. just doesn't deliver i mean this right. is a, this is a guy who is a very introspective very uh, erudite kind of a guy, very low-key. I mean, he is a university professor type guy. He's a lawyer, but he's a university professor style, sort of research professor style. He's not a get-out-in-your-face, razzmatazz kind of guy. If, if, if uh, I heard somebody say the other day, if Ken Dryden had any charisma at all, he would be the uh, shoe-in for the, for the uh, prime ministry. But he's got none, zero. There's no charisma there at all other than this patina of being Ken Dryden, the hockey great. One-on-one, he's a very uh, engaging guy. Uh, I've interviewed him a number of times. One-on-one, an engaging guy. He can take a, a, a group of people in a room and entertain the heck out of them with hockey stories. But when he starts talking about anything other than hockey, he goes into this monotone drone, and it's all you can do to keep your eyes open. That's funny, because aren't there all kinds of people who... who uh, Specialize in teaching how not to do that. Are there kind of sp- yes, but but not not everyone can overcome that, and not mm-hmm. everyone thinks they need to either. I think yeah. this is another part of it. There are a lot of people who are very resistant to that sort of thing. They think that it's artificial, that it's show busy, and so on, without realizing that everyone everyone learns their vocal style at some point. Some people learn it on the school on the school ground. Some people learn it in their homes. Some people learn it at Toastmasters. Some people learn it at public speaking classes. Everybody learns how to speak. And the, the, the politicians, and you see them with some regularity. You say, well, I couldn't do that. That's not the real me. Nah, that's nonsense. The, the, the real me of any politician, I think one of, the, uh, one of the, the basic premises should be that you can entertain people, and I don't mean it in a frivolous sense, entertain them in the sense that you can hold them. You've got to hold that audience to, to get them to listen to what you have to say. Well, sure, and you're a cheerleader, too, to a certain extent. Indeed you are. We have to hold our audience and share some important messages with them as well. Let's do it right now. We'll be back right after this. Uh, shift the focus a little bit. Politics a little closer to home. You guys both have your noses to the wind. Joe Fontana, mayor of the city of London. I think the uh, the inside skinny, aside from the free press raising doubts as to whether he might be able to win or not, on which they did in the weekend, the inside political wisdom seems to be that he's going to run. 
um, that he's probably going to wait until uh, after Labor Day to announce, may even wait until the 18th so he could go to Parliament and formally tender his uh, resignation as a uh, as a senior member of parliament and a former cabinet minister and do that properly and then come back and announce. Um, what do you think of his chances, Bob? Um, first I heard, I didn't think he would have that much of a chance uh, with the popularity of Anne-Marie right now. And uh, I said the same thing the last election. Uh, was that Vaughn Miner? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Who was that, Matt? Yeah, that's, that's, that's how it seems after the election is over. Um, I think it's hard to sometimes understand why people vote for certain people, but just talking around town, I know a lot of people like Anne-Marie for whatever reason. Um, a lot of people like Joe, too, but Joe's been on city council, uh, went the other way towards the federal politics, you know. And, uh, I mean, if anybody would give her a run, he would, I would think. I think, in a way, they cut into the same constituency, uh, if you know, like you know, type voter type. Yeah. So you can't say they're splitting the vote because there's not a party involved there. But in a sense, they might be. Uh, I would think that they'd have a lot of common interests. So I'm not too sure what Joe thinks he should be doing so different than Henry is. Uh, but then again, he hasn't said. Uh, Jeff, what do you think? Well, and it, it actually reminds me of, of kind of races past, like uh, Grant Hopcroft, for instance, when he ran. And it's too bad, in a way, that when you run for mayor, it's all or nothing. You're in or you're gone. And uh, so, in a way, Joe's taking a pretty big risk there, I guess. And I, and I, you know, I, I haven't talked to him, and I don't really know what the rationale is for coming back. But I, I, I also wonder, like, whether it's that he wants to spend more time in London or whatever. I would have thought that the work he's doing now, in some respects, on the in the card game of politics, is a higher card than going back to city council even as mayor um so it, that's a bit surprising to me uh well, also- r- rumor has it that it's no fun being a backbencher that the party is in in incredible flux and that he's not thrilled with the flux that it's in and how it got fluxed in the first place and that uh and that he sees and he wants to come home to london he's been away for a long time he wants to come home and believes that the uh that there is work to be done here that in terms of long-term planning and uh team building and so on that london has not been as effective as it as it might be this is this is what i'm hearing i haven't talked to joe about this for several months but that's what i'm hearing now yeah well you know i guess uh that i i can see all that although i don't personally uh, I wouldn't have thought that was the case in the sense that I recall back when the Liberals were in opposition and I thought they had a lot more fun then than they were in government particularly for backbenchers because uh, you could uh, shoot from the hip and uh, and uh, just go go to town on people a lot more than when you're a backbencher in the government you have to shut up basically but anyway that, that said as far as their chances it would be quite interesting because uh, Joe certainly is a, is a very experienced knowledgeable charismatic guy um, coming back into a forum that he's been away from for a long time and I, I sent my sense like as Bob's expressing is that I don't see anybody really mad at Anne Marie and, and I'm always reminded in politics about the, the adage of an old editor at the Free Press who said you know you have to remember people don't vote people in they vote them out that's right and I think you know if everybody's basically okay with Anne Marie she's uh, you know kind of keeping a lid on things over there then I don't know that they really would see a need to change what about the possibility and nobody's mentioned this yet but I think this is something that needs to be considered um, th- there is an anti-Anne Marie constituency out there and a, and a big chunk of it is centered in London's business community, um, which 
she probably would debate, but I know from what I hear from people that there are a lot of people who are very concerned about our economic future and are concerned that the council we have now has not just been on the ball the way it should have been, and they tend to blame the leader of the council, which maybe is unfair. They tend to blame Anne-Marie. I think there is a constituency out there that's unhappy, whether it's the average voter, I don't know. But there's another possibility here. If, if Fontana were to come in, and uh, everybody expects that he will, um, there is going to be a shared constituency. There's the so-called ethnic vote that's there. Um, uh, there's the liberal vote mm-hmm. because they're both you know, uh, affiliated with the liberal party to varying degrees. One wonders about a third candidate. That's oh, yeah. Steve Peters won the uh, won the election, and uh, the mayor of St. Thomas was came, sort of came up the middle, uh, while the other two were scrapping away at each other, and uh, sort sort of smiled and said, "Hey, I'm a nice guy. Why don't you vote for me?" And they did. Hey, Ivan Kashurik for mayor. Think about that. Jeff. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I don't know if Gordon McKenzie has, has ruled it out altogether or not, uh, but I would think that he would be somebody who would be attractive to the business community as a, as a bank vice president or a retired bank vice president. So yeah, that could be interesting. Although. I, uh, it would, uh, again, I don't think that Joe himself would be somebody who would necessarily appeal more to business than Anne-Marie would. And in in kind of the party generally, I would think that he would be seen as being traditionally on the leftish side uh, of the liberal. I don't know. I, I I would think just from what I know about people's reaction, business people's reaction to him in London, I think he's uh, I think he's definitely seen as a uh, as a blue liberal when it comes to business issues. Could be, because he was a Minister of Labor, I guess, and uh, Minister of Housing as well. But, I don't know, it's always hard to tell with Liberals. You know, you go to a speech and they they always campaign from the left. They say one thing one day and one thing the next. Well, they say all the things I want to hear, and then when it comes to being in government, suddenly they forget about all that. That's what what Mushy is being all about. (laughs) People like that. We'll be back with Mushy and Ishi right (laughs) after this. Stay with us. (laughs) A couple of different stories that uh, had some circulation this week and today, too, again, in a couple of papers. Um, one of the, the story in one of the papers from uh, former police chief Julian Fantino, who's now the head of the emergency preparedness or whatever they call that now, um, talking about the responsibility of individual Ontarians to take care of themselves for the first few days of any kind of a disaster, talking primarily about weather disasters, but who knows? And he said he was pointing to to uh, uh, New Orleans, and where, where a great many people, it, it is said, just sort of sat back and waited for the government to come and rescue them. And he said that we, we, you must not do that. You must be prepared to look after yourself for a while till government can ramp up. And then there was another story that sort of fitted in with that, uh, talking about triage, medical triage, that the, the docs are trying to, and the, and the health ministry are trying to, to put in place some kind of hard and fast rules for triage for who gets treated in the event of a pandemic. Um, and uh, some of the tough questions they're asking, for example, if you've got limited facilities, uh, you know you, can, you simply cannot treat everyone. Who gets treated and who doesn't? Do you treat the little child who's very, very ill and, uh, and might well die? Um, it's, a, it's a little child that tugs at the heartstrings. We have saved the children. Do you save the 75-year-old fellow with some health complications who gave uh, $20 million to the hospital? Do you save his life? Do you give him preferential treatment? Uh, what about the families of the medical personnel? If their own families are dying, are they likely to be as effective uh, on the front lines as if they know their families are going to get taken care of? Uh, th- these are huge ethical questions that we pray we will never have to face. Do you th- either of you think uh, or have any thoughts on w- whether this is just a kind of a pointless exercise to try to decide in advance, well, this person will, this person won't? 
I, th- I think those choices are being made every day in hospitals. Uh, there's there's limited resources for everything all the time. Uh, that it's more extreme in a pandemic or an emergency or a hurricane doesn't change the nature of it. And I think the person who should get to decide is the person who's actually offering the service, who's actually doing it. Who, who else should be able to decide? Well, except most of these services, I guess, are owned by us, ultimately. Well, that's the mythology. You don't own it, Jeff. You can't sell a share of it. Come on. Quit. I get but, to use it pretty good, though. Well, you can but, use uh, it, but it isn't yours, and you don't, don't own right. it, and like, you don't own the people the inside it. The decisions are certainly made by the people on the spot, although it's probably not a bad idea to have a debate about it, to, to be aware of those kinds of things, and, you know, the public kind of, one way or another, express themselves collectively on these things. Well, here's a moral dilemma for you. In this one, you've got the 75-year-old guy who donated $10 million to the new wing, and there's a small pandemic. It doesn't destroy our society or anything, but it's serious enough, and he doesn't get treated, and he dies, uh, and it, it comes comes out that he was he was triaged out of the out of the treatment list and he might have survived had he got uh, lots of resources thrown his way but they saved three other people instead etc 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 the next guy with 10 million dollars to donate to the hospital is he going to think twice about doing that is that should that be a consideration should there well, be whether it should or shouldn't it is I mean, you need the money to operate the hospital. That's a fact of nature because people don't do things for nothing. Um, So uh, to uh, to argue whether it should or shouldn't is like saying should nature exist or not. No, but but, but you're getting into emergency ethics, and and people aren't in a lifeboat all day long. And when you get into that lifeboat, you know, things, some of the standards change. I suspect actually that from just from what you're saying, and I, I would expect that a bigger dilemma would be for your for a doctor's friends and relatives, for instance, would they get better service and so on? And and you know, we we all know of people who have um, had bad experiences with with the medical community, whereas other people who have friends who are doctors and so on get the front of the line, find a place yeah. to get in quicker and all that kind of stuff. Those would be very tough decisions, I would think, for the medical community. The the donating money thing, you know, I, I doubt if most people who donate money really expect that it's going to give them service so much as it's... not? Well, I, you know, the people who have their name on names on buildings uh, at the university, for example, to me they do it, well, uh, one hopes for kind of a public service generosity thing, well, but and, also and, for some publicity. And, 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 and I wouldn't fault them for any reason that they didn't. I think it's great that they give the money, but I think it's a naive to think that they think that, yeah, and if I get into a jam, if I roll in there in an ambulance, that they're not going to hop hop to it pretty quick because my name's over the door. Well, I think that to the extent that they're probably going to know well the senior administration and all that, that's going to give them the access. But a, a nurse or somebody, I bet you, I, I would think that if they see, well, your name's on the door, I don't think that would matter too much to them, frankly. But, but those kinds of questions are, are quite legitimate because it is the case that uh, people who happen to have entree to the medical system I think do get served much better and we know now it's, you know, we all know that uh, you increasingly are involved in your medical care and advocating for yourself and insisting that you do get in if you don't push you don't get the tests that you need and all that stuff and also that we're expected to be more involved in caring for relatives and so on when they go in the hospital um, so you're right those decisions are being made all the time and uh, it's something that we do need to talk about otherwise the decisions get made us not knowing why. Gentlemen, the band is playing uh, warming up in the next room, and that means we're just about out of time. Thanks to both of you for coming today. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, nice you. to have the three of us in the room again. Uh, sure was. Meet you here next Wednesday. How's that? You got it. I'll talk to you later. And we'll be back tomorrow at 11 with the next edition of the News Hour, bringing you all the news that fits. And maybe a little something to think about along with it. 
the meantime, it's Jim Chapman saying, please take care of each other, mind how you go, and God bless. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed this presentation, visit www.justrightmedia.org for more programming that's not right-wing, it's just right.